Welcome back to the peripheral. I had a lot of help getting this episode done, but I do want to give a disclaimer that I had a bunch of audio problems and my voice doesn't sound the best, but my guest sounds great. And that's all that really matters is their story. So today's episode, I speak with Chris, who talks about his journey with mental health, uh, how he became aware of his struggle, and then how he was able to get medicated and stabilized. I hope it inspires anyone out there that's struggling to seek help and never give up. Well, thank you, Justin. I want you to know that I'm a big fan of your podcast, and I'm really glad to be here. My name is Chris Reyes, and I am here to talk a little bit about manic depression and specifically what would be manic depression slash schizoaffective disorder. I put the two together. I don't know if they're necessarily put together in many instances, but the initial diagnosis that I had back when I was 20 years old was manic depressive slash schizoaffective. So I went ahead and I've kind of coupled them together. and That's sort of how I see myself. Can you give like a rough definition of schizoaffective disorder? Manic depressive, I'll start with that yeah. because I mean, it seems to be you know one of the main ones out there. And it's not going to be exact because I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but to me, it's manic depressives tend to fluctuate between highs and lows and that their moods tend to destabilize into mania, then on occasionally depression. And along with that, with the schizoaffective thrown in, there tends to be more schizophrenic type elements that are a part of the presentation of symptoms. One of the things that's really important to think about is the schizophrenic type elements can also be a part of manic depression, depending. I know there are a lot of definitions that are out there when it comes to the world of psychology and the world of characterizing mental disorders, but a lot of which are sometimes like thrown together or merged. And I think this is definitely one of those instances. So it was around age 20 when you figured out you were having a problem? Oh, that's correct. Around age 20 when I transitioned from my hometown. I had basically went to community college there for two years, done very well at that, and was transitioning to a bigger university at the time. That particular transition was very difficult for me, and I think that's kind of where things started. My first depressive episode I experienced during that time. The first semester that I was there, I had a 3.9 GPA. My academics were going great. Everything was amazing. I was uneasy about the school because I felt nervous about it. wasn't really too happy necessarily about it, but I had kind of uh, pulled into my courses and just did really well. I was having problems towards the end of the semester there, just mental problems I knew. I was feeling depressed, but I was still able to pull out with very good grades. The second semester I went there, I told my parents over break before the second semester that I was having problems. And I was very clear in that, that there's something not right. And I was experiencing mental problems, something. I felt sad. I, I felt nothing at times, you know, and that was the biggest symptoms that I had as far as depression went. Anxiety and then just not feeling anything at all. And that's sort of the worst feeling at all. That emptiness is very hard to deal with sometimes. I had told my parents about that and I expressed concern about it. And I told them, I don't know if I need to be going back to school for the second semester. I feel like something's really wrong. They encouraged me to go back. They're like, once you're there a while, you'll begin to kind of snap into things. And, eh, you know, that's kind of the typical response I would expect. And that's uh, sort of what I went along with. What happened the second semester was the exact opposite of what I was experiencing the first semester. I went from feeling depressed the first semester to more manic the second semester where I went up. So 
things changed then. I wasn't feeling depressed anymore. I was feeling incredibly outgoing, incredibly eccentric. My courses that I had taken, I dropped out all of them with the exception of two, which I stayed in, which I failed. And those were a 0.0 GPA for the semester. Even though you weren't in this depressive slump, you then turned around and were feeling, I don't know if better was the right word, but you were feeling more active, yet you dropped all your classes and failed a few that you had. That's not <laughs> the intended outcome here. No. no, not at all. And that was one of the difficult parts about it was the respect that you know, during that time period, I had a roommate, we were partying a lot, got into drug use at the time a little bit had other friends that were coming up, having a good time, and basically just had a good time and partied. That was pretty much what it was. So it was sort of just on the up end, going really hard, not sleeping much. A lot of symptoms, basically, that would be consistent with mania. Are you hearing anything at this point, or are you just having major highs and lows? At this point, I was just having major highs and lows that I was aware of. So the schizoaffective element more so was not so much in the picture. At this point, things were on the up. And I was living in this university town, having a great time, had a girlfriend. We were having a blast. And it was a little bit beyond just having a good time. In our later years, we realized that drugs and alcohol don't help your mental illness, especially when you're just abusing them. So in fact, it could probably make the problem a lot worse. Absolutely. And, you know, I think in my case, that might have been the circumstance as well. I got to the point there where I had finished the semester, I had gotten 0.0, everything was looking bad. Oddly enough, I could have went back <laughs> because I had a high enough GPA the first time around to basically pull it up to go back. But at that point, my parents knew there was something wrong and I definitely never had bad grades like that. I had never just failed. I ended up during the summer by myself in Lawrence. I had a lot of friends that left town at that point and went home. And I was there basically partying, drinking by myself and other people I would meet up with. And it got to a point where I remember things were kind of getting strange. I guess I was really going up high and I would talk to my mom and they would notice it more than I would. It's hard for me to kind of characterize it, but my mom noticed I sound strange. I would be so excited and on the up. It was just really strange to, to hear this from me because I'm usually a pretty grounded person for the most part. They began to become concerned. They ended up coming up to Lawrence, getting me, packing up all my stuff and taking me back to my hometown where I'd grown up. And what was the plan when you got there? I don't know. I guess at that point they were just sort of evaluating things. They didn't really know what to do. They didn't really know what the problem was. I didn't either. I knew I was feeling really high. I was feeling things were kind of shifting in the sense that I was beginning to kind of take on more of a delusional mindset. I became very interested in telekinesis, the possible existence of that, which would be sort of a very strange thing for me to be interested in. It's just not something you just all of a sudden become interested in, I guess. But it was all based on how I was feeling, how you could predict people's thoughts, how you can do these certain types of things that were unreal things that just didn't quite make sense. And I was kind of entering a delusional mindset. It was during a time in which I had just left the university. My parents had come to the conclusion that I was no longer fit to be living on my own in an apartment at the university. I ended up going home for the summer and I was having issues still at that point, definitely. But it really kind of solidified or came to a point when my dad was and he was working out on it, like his Norda track or whatever it is he was doing. I was watching TV. There were blinds on the windows and they were drawn or whatnot. And I remember thinking about these blinds and looking over and the idea that you could make them move, you know, with my mind. I mean, literally thinking that. 
I looked over at the blinds and they were moving back and forth heavily, not just like in a slight way, but in a very excited sort of way. They were moving back and forth and I was like, whoa, that's really weird. What's going on here? And so I asked my dad, I'm like, dad, why are the blinds moving back and forth really rapidly? What's good? Do you see that? He's like, no, I don't. So I was like, oh, and you know, I didn't know what to think. And I think at that point, my dad obviously suspected something mentally was definitely off. The next thing you know, he had taken me to a treatment facility called Charter. He'd taken me there for evaluation so they could look at me. So I checked into that, was going to stay however long, just had them evaluate me. And I was you know, already having issues. I was already slightly getting more, right, being more and more delusional. Yeah, having more hallucinations. They began to like throw me on, there was some liquid in a cup. I don't know what it was. And that it was some very strong antipsychotic, I would imagine. I don't know that, but it kind of sounds like it fits the picture. So I began, you know, taking that and I was like, wow, I feel wasted. I could hardly function here. The first thing I knew is I didn't want to be there <laughs> and I wanted to get out and they wouldn't just let me write myself out or anything. I couldn't do that. So basically I was stuck with being there. Well, it was all pretty interesting. My dad had checked me in and he had left. And then like, I think a day later, my mom came and then my parents at the time weren't getting along really too well. I knew that. And I guess my mom came on her own to see me. And and she was like, I can't believe your father put you in here. Yeah, you know, did the, you know, you know, I didn't know what to think. I was half out of my mind on this stuff. I remember, you know, my mom was like upset. When she had left, she went out a specific door from this facility. It was basically an interior door that was on the inside of this facility. There were a series of doors to get to the exit, which was like an outpatient area or something. It seemed like at the time they had these certain knocks or something. They were used on the door to get them to open it because somebody else was triggering the door or whatnot. And I kind of caught on to that system. What had happened was is I used the knock and ended up going down another corridor. And it was a long hallway. I remember... And distinctly, you know, walking down this hallway, getting away ways down and getting towards the double door. But it was a long corridor. I don't know if too many people could actually say they were actually, in reality, running down a long corridor, a long hallway. And there were two orderlies yeah. running behind them. But that's what it ended up being because I walked for a little while. I looked behind me. Next thing you know, there was two orderlies running after me. I ran to the second door, did the knock on it. It opened. And it opened into like a waiting room area, a reception room. I think it must have been the outpatient area. There were another doors there that were pure glass. And in between, there was a payphone. And my mom was using the payphone. <laughs> and I get up to the double doors and I, like, you know, grab for the double doors and they locked them so I couldn't get out. And my mom was just looking like back in like terror. These two orders like, orders like grabbed me and like called me back. Yeah, totally. <laughs> I mean, it's like, yeah, it really happened. I remember that pretty distinctly, and that was like kind of a hallmark memory from that. It's such the stereotype of the idea we have when you're in some kind of institution or sure. chasing you down. Well, there's a, like a, a kind of a whole nother, I wouldn't say political system, but like a, I guess an authoritarian system that's happening there. I mean, you have no control, really. You do to a certain degree, but it's fairly minimal, and you effectively do what you're told or you're going to end up having problems or getting into trouble. And uh, that's definitely the case. I mean, I ended up having problems there. I think my second or third night there, it was getting to the point where I don't know if I was getting sick. I don't know what's happening, but I was totally freaking out. I was like up and like having problems like body wise, like I was going into seizures effectively. And the people there didn't, they were just like, whoa, they had no idea what was happening. Next thing you know, the ambulance came, picked me up. 
And they took me and I had no idea what was happening at the time. I was completely pretty delusional by that point. And I remember being scared. I'd never been in an ambulance before. I didn't know what was happening. And so they took me to another facility, which was actually a hospital-based facility. I don't remember too much. I got there and then I remember being taken up to some rooms or something. And I remember I had my eyes shut tight, like I wouldn't open my eyes. And they like had some kind of pull my eyelids back and everything so my eyes would open. For some reason, they didn't want to open my eyes. I don't know why, but I was like terrified. I just imagine a clockwork horn. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) These types of facilities, I'll say, if you're not delusional by the time you get there, you will be soon after. I'm not criticizing them at all. I'm really not. In fact, it's quite the opposite. I think that, unfortunately, I don't really know of any other way to care for anyone that was in a condition like what I was in other than someplace like this. And when I speak of someplace like this, it was a hospital-based ward for mentally ill people who had been checked in. This went from everything from people who had been county had been arrested that they had determined had mental issues and were being evaluated were, were there. From that to virtually every age, whatever you could imagine. Everybody had rooms, but they were all out mixing around and it was just, you know, whatever happened, happened. I've been to one of those. <laughs> and it's from criminal behavior to complete deassociation with reality to suicide attempt. You get a very large span of dysfunctionality <laughs> all happening at once in one area. Sometimes there were fights, sometimes people would cause problems, the orderlies would come out, strangle them down, and I don't know what they did, but they would haul them off. There would be those particular incidents, you know, things like that would happen there. But I remember when I had first gotten there, I remember it was night and after that, there's a memory lapse that occurred for like three or four days. They say I was catatonic for three or four days, and I don't know, really. I don't remember it. They say I was up against a wall, basically, most of the time, would be completely still, and it's kind of strange, you know, thing to happen. How scary <laughs> was it for you to hear about your behavior and having no memory of it? Things get pretty interesting from there on out. There were a series of behaviors after that that scared me even more. There's a lot of things that were happening. You know, I had woken up from that after the third or fourth day and was, at that point, seeing everything from angels to, I remember watching TV, watching shining lights around people, like very strange visual hallucinations. And it was, I mean, audiovisual hallucinations. I was hearing friends' voices and things like that, too. I can only imagine when you think you're seeing an angel or think you're hearing a voice, Mm -hmm. then your delusion makes it make sense. Of course it does, because your idea of the way the world works is, to this point, everybody's idea is you want to make sense of the world around you and incorporate it into a reality that you understand. And that's sort of the idea with mental illness. That's why you see that, even if you struggle not to believe in it, you know, delusion, and that's something that I've struggled with here and there for the past 20 years, is dealing with uh, mental illness that way. But We'll talk a little more about that. I'll mention it. But yeah, and I would give fully into it. I was very immersed into, I guess, the whole schizoaffective side of things at that point. I was hallucinating a lot. I was, you know, having auditory and visual hallucinations, delusions, etc. And there are degrees. It's just something that I've had to be aware of for my life are the degrees in, in terms of the degree of sickness. I was very, very sick then. I have never been that sick since. It's a very interesting sort of a ecosystem there, you know, because you meet people, some people like you, some don't. Ended up meeting a few friends there, people I would never see again after being there. Everybody makes the best of the situation when they're there. 
So I ended up staying there for about six weeks, I believe. My parents let my insurance lapse, so it was a little concerned about the possibility of them keeping me there indefinitely with insurance. Six weeks into it, the psychiatrists were like, we think you're probably good to go home. And they had done several tests on me to look at my mind, MRI, those kind of things, different brain assessments. Do you those remember kind of what things. kind of like mental evaluation they would give you? It's really hard because I remember being afraid because you're already crazy, so to speak. But, but you want to get out of there. That's right, but you want to get out of there. And they're wheeling you over in a wheelchair to have something done and they're putting a bunch of electrodes on your chest and you know stuff all over you you hear this machine making noises and you're a little bit terrified you know and you're just holding still and scared and they finish that are you able to finish that off and get that taken care of i don't know what it was at the time i remember it happening but i'm sure at the time i'd like fed some sort of delusion in with it to make it make sense i mean off the top of my head i can't recall but i remember having a particular series of those kind of tests done I guess by those, they had made the assessment that what I was looking at was not necessarily like schizophrenia or their abnormalities of the brain, I think, that are physical abnormalities. It wasn't really the case, but it was more something you know, along the lines of bipolar disorder or schizoaffective disorder. Fall is in full swing. Getting weeknight dinners is easier than ever with every plate. America's best value meal kit. When your days get jam-packed, every plate will help you get delicious meals on the table without breaking the bank. Every plate's quality ingredients come pre-portioned to help you save money and reduce food waste. You know, like that bag of spinach that you throw out every week. So change things up as often as you want. Choose between 21 recipes that change each week, swap between proteins and the sides of your liking, and do what I do. Don't turn to takeout when things get hectic. Instead, get every plate delivered. It's actually 58% cheaper than your average fast casual meal, and you can always feel good about what you're eating. Every plate is the easiest way to get more bang for your buck. One meal from every plate is just $4.99. I got the veggie flatbread. It was delicious, better than delivery. Get your first box for just $1.49 per meal by going to everyplate.com and use the code PERIPHERAL149. Get started with every plate for just $1.49 per meal on your first box by going to everyplate.com and entering the code PERIPHERAL149. That's P-E-R-I-P-H-E-R-A-L-149. I just know that you want to get out of there, but you feel like they're analyzing every single one of your words and seeing through you trying to pretend that you're normal, but they know that you're not normal and it's just nerve-wracking. That's the thing, Justin. The whole time, you'll do anything to get out of there. I mean, you don't want to be there. You want to basically come up with anything you can think of to get out of there, and they don't let you go. It was a good thing they didn't let me go. I wasn't. I didn't need it to be out among the public. Not because I was a danger to anybody. I never throughout this entire course have felt like I was a danger to anybody. I don't think anybody around me ever felt that way either. I mean, it's just not that way. If I was a danger to anybody, it was myself. And it was probably due to the likelihood of being delusional and, you know, possibly accidentally getting in a bad situation just due to that by itself. I don't remember the statistic, but it's like people that are mentally ill are three or four times more likely to be victimized than to actually victimize somebody. So don't have a grasp and then somebody else can take advantage of you. Somebody else can do something to you. Living in a metropolitan area for the last 20 years, you know, it's interesting when I see sometimes people on the street, people that are homeless or that are unfortunate in some way like that. It's interesting to see them because some of their behaviors that I see like will be, and, and I'm not here to like, 
try to characterize them necessarily or to put them in a diagnosis or anything like that. But I mean, I've seen behaviors that definitely mimics. It's like I can understand that in a sense. I'll see him, oh, he's sick. He's mentally ill. It's obvious. And it's really too bad. It makes you very sad. It makes me very sad to see that because typically if these people were able to take medicine and continue to take medicine of their own accord, they would probably be better, higher functioning in terms of being normal. That's the thing about mental illness like this in particular. I will say that it's probably the most selfish place you can be. And I don't mean selfish in the negative context of to get all out for you and nobody else or to put us as a disadvantage because that's not it. I mean selfish in the respect that you're completely engaged in yourself, completely immersed in everything from when you're part of that delusion and you're living that and you're completely immersed in that. When you get far enough along, that's pretty much takes you on and maybe you back off a little bit when it's not quite as bad, you can talk to others. If there's one thing I can tell you about mental illness, it's selfish because you're engaged within yourself. Well, it's involuntarily. That's right. You don't mean that. You're not yeah, trying to be. I mean, it's not like but, you're choosing anything. Mm-hmm. You're just locked into this, your own head. You're locked in your own head. It's not by choice. So how did you start pulling yourself out of this once you were released? When they released me, my mother came and got me. I don't know if she helped me sign out. I don't know what it was. I was 20 years old. I assume that legally I could sign myself out. don't know what the process was. I know that the psychiatrists that were there at the facility had kind of evaluated me and thought that as long as I was going to be under my parents' care, that I would probably be okay. And so that's what they did. I ended up going home with my mom. That was a whole other thing altogether because... You see, while I was institutionalized for that period of time, my parents got a divorce. <laughs> so <laughs> so that added like a whole other side to things. And I didn't really know anything about it until I'd gotten out. And it was kind of explained to me by my mother. She wanted me to stay at home, but my father was no longer living there. And my soon-to-be stepfather had moved in. So <laughs> a lot of change to come home to. Tremendous amount of change. Yeah, to someone I'd never met before, you know, even. I ended up going home with my mom for a while. The circumstance was very strange because I wanted to see my dad too. And where was he? Well, he was in the same town. He lived about eight blocks away. My grandmother's, her old house, because she had went to a retirement home and the house was still empty. And she wanted my dad to move in it because they weren't going to be together. And that was awful because my dad was like in a terrible disposition. My mom, had, you know, obviously had left my dad. And yeah, so he was in a really bad shape. And, and that sucks because it's like that time, that most important time when you come home and you need all the support and stability and you're kind of coming home to chaos. Yeah. Nobody could get along. My sister was there, which was great. It was good to have her around. But for the most part, my mom and my dad were kind of caught up in their own stuff. So I ended up meeting my stepdad and I I didn't feel so great about staying at my mom's at the time. So I ended up moving in with my father, which is okay. I had months of issues, months of delusional thought, months of one particular night. I remember this very distinctly. Actually, it just kind of stands out on my mind of all the times I've had. I remember one night thinking, you know, it's going to be the end of the world and God is coming. I ended up pouring whole like water, just as if it were holy water around all the entrances of the house, you know, to keep out anything bad. And this is going to this this end of the world. And then I remember the little night it was storming and the moon was out there. I could still see parts of the clouds rushing by and. And I went outside on the front lawn, and I guess my dad was asleep, I don't know, but I went outside, and I was like walking out there. 
I remember watching the moon and seeing the moon come and all this like vapor from the moon like come in through my chest. And there was like all these souls coming through me somehow, like being like cleansed or something. And I was like, oh, this is a very strange thing. And then I came up with this whole concept of the idea that, you know, Christ manifests himself from individual to individual, depending on what time period it is. Those individuals were given the burden of cleansing all the souls. And it was this bizarre, like, you know, thing that I came up with. Listening to this, and I'm thinking, okay, the moon is turning into vapor, and this is all the souls of all the people that have died because it's the end of the world. But then you go in a totally, completely different direction. In your mind, it's logical, but to anyone else, well, how does that even flow together that he's manifesting in every body and going from time period to time period? It's, this is why it's called delusions. Absolutely. And it's like I said, you'll do anything you can to explain them or to be a part of it, to make it make sense to you. It's like your natural disposition to engage. That's where you have to be very careful if you suffer from a mental condition long-term. That's something we can talk about here in a minute. But I remember that particular episode in particular, and I remember that night you know, laying down and looking at my hands because there was enough light in the room where I could see my hands. And my grandfather basically came into my body and I could see his hands on top of mine and everything basically. And then talking to me to keep me calm. And he said, this will be the worst night. He was like, this will be the worst of it. And he was right. It's kind of a weird thing. It was like strange delusional stuff, I'm sure, but I remember that. And that is part of a voice. And your grandfather had been deceased for a while. Yeah, quite a while. Things got a little bit better from there. I still had issues with seeing a shadow man occasionally, which reminded me of like what you would see like in the stand or something like this shadowy dark figure, black figure made out of birds or crows or whatever that would manifest here and there. And fields, driving by, I would see it like with my grandmother. I drove around a lot with my grandmother during this time. And that was in the daytime, broad daylight, not when you're going to sleep. Yeah, broad daylight, you'd see these things. This isn't like sleep paralysis and the the shadow person in the room. This is during waking hours. Absolutely during working areas. It was consistent. It's continuous, you know. Do you remember what medications you were on at that time, if any? No, that I was on lithium carbonate. I was on Risperdal, I believe, Klonopin. And they were just trying to find the right mix or dose to bring you back to reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they were trying to basically get me acclimatized to the lithium and get the lithium up in my blood to a certain level. And I know they were measuring that kind of, and that was the biggest thing that they were interested in, it seemed like, was the lithium. As it turned out, that's been, over the years, the thing that has really you know, helped me. How long do you think it took before you started to kind of turn a corner? Let's see, from the hospital to living with my parents, I think it probably took about five or six months. But here's the thing. At the end of that period... After I was getting over the hallucinations, coming back more grounded, whatnot, then I got depressed. So it seems like, you know, this is a roller coaster ride. If you go up, you have to go down, you know, and you even out at some point. And at that point, were you able to continue college or anything? It took a little bit of time, but I was. I believe I stayed home for about a year. Then I went back to college, back to the university setting, and went back for molecular biology. It's quite a degree. <laughs> no, it was a great degree. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, something I really enjoyed. I did very well at it. I finished my degree, ended up with my bachelor's degree in molecular and cellular biology. And this is the whole time while I stayed medicated. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't always on something like the antipsychotic, I believe, is Risperdal. 
I ended up staying, I ended up getting off of that stuff and basically just being on the lithium and the clonop and I think to sleep at night a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, and then a medication for depression, I believe it's called Wellbutrin. Take Seroquel, knocked me out for about 36 hours. No, I mean, I've taken it on a regular basis for months at a time and, you know, don't get me wrong, it's an elephant dart. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, for me, even to, I mean, it has an incredible sedative effect. I think it acts on certain neurotransmitters. It's kind of very effective in keeping things nice and calm and an even keel. The effect that it had on me anyway, it was like, I would take it, I'd just sleep, sleep 12 hours and have a really hard time waking up. After a while, you take it for several weeks, you get used to it a little bit. It's easier to get up and around, but you never quite lose that feeling of being zombified or whatever to a certain degree the tiredness of it it kind of sticks around so if you were having terrible delusions or hallucinations and were to take seroquel would you still have those hallucinations or would you just not care about them because you're so tired the impact that the stuff has on me is i still have them but i don't know if they're not as pronounced i'm not sure exactly it seems when the doses are higher, they're reduced to a certain degree, or I'm able to sustain that and basically still stay rooted in reality, so to speak, as opposed to delusion. And that's what I say there are degrees of delusion and hallucinating, etc. Does the circle blunt that? For me, maybe a little bit. It keeps things definitely nice and calm. <laughs> Did you have any major side effects from those things, or were they pretty straightforward for you. Side effects were minimal. With lithium, you have a continuous thirst or an increased thirst. You drink more water. That's a part of that. But for me, that was about it. That was about the only symptom I had, and that was okay. I know some people out there don't like to take medicine, and I understand that. The idea of having to spend the rest of your life every night taking a medication is kind of a grim thought for a lot of people. But, you know, the psychiatrist I had was basically like, well, you can take this every night, or you can go back to being the way you were. Yeah. And they didn't know that necessarily, but there was a pretty good chance. At that point, I definitely didn't want to be crazy again. I knew that. And I was functioning again as a normal person, I guess. All, all the prescriptions out there, they affect everyone differently. They do. Some people have more side effects, or some people like you have very little side effect, which is amazing. I know that when I've taken certain medications, I've had what they call a paradoxical effect, which is kind of the exact opposite of what the medication was supposed to do. For example, I got prescribed Prozac. Within three or four days of taking Prozac, I was having homicidal thoughts and was becoming very aggressive and combative and had lost most of my inhibitions and was willing to get into fights, physical fights with people over slightest problems and keep trying. That's the real problem is you're struggling and yeah, there's a lot of setbacks there. I mean, with medication, I think it's easy to become discouraged as a patient. As you mentioned, you're trying, you're continually trying new medications or new cocktails of medication to make things work. You know, I will say it's worth it to go through it. The psychiatrist I had at the hospital, and the one I got after that was pretty much unbelievable. Someone like you, who was diagnosed like this and was having these behaviors, having these serious issues, could go from where you're at there to where you're at now. It's very interesting that you did that. For me, it was kind of very empowering. And I don't know if the psychiatrist was just saying that, or depending on you know what things are, they could just be trying to make you feel good, but that's okay too. It's like, I don't know, and that's fine, but it it feels good to think that. I'd come a long way from being extremely sick back to functioning like a normal person, I think. 
So, I mean, you're very high functioning. You have to work for very renowned companies, but to have that idea that you could have been that guy on the street screaming at a wall, you were on the brink of that. If you didn't have your mom and dad, I would have been that guy. I never would have went to the hospital necessarily to begin with or anything, possibly never have any real treatment. It's effective. My parents were very much so instrumental in helping me out. And it was really interesting because from a family perspective, I mean, these two types of illnesses typically run in families. You'll see that quite a bit and they're genetically linked. And my parents could not figure out where this had come from or why I was this way. It was just so elusive to them. Well, <laughs> then my great aunt came to town, you know, and she's like, well, truth be known, there's been a lot of mental illness in the family. I'm one example of it. If it wasn't for lithium, I'd be locked up right now. And she had a lot of mental illness problems. And as it turns out, my sister ended up having a lot of problems with mental illness. She's four years younger, but as she got older, she ended up having a lot of problems with mental illness, got medicated and, you know, was high functioning software programmer. It was a definite kind of stigma associated with it. It doesn't seem so much the case now. I would hope that people that have mental illnesses aren't discriminated against. In many cases, people that have mental illnesses can be treated pretty successfully these days and go back to living a normal life. I believe that, and it's from what I've seen over the years. I guess if someone were out there, you know, and, and didn't know much about this kind of stuff, and you know, and had watched a lot of television relative to serial killer stuff or psychos or whatever, it would be maybe easy to confuse the two. Yeah, I think you'd be surprised about a lot of people that cope with mental illnesses and live right within society, just like you do, and are fine, would never hurt anyone. And when the COVID shutdowns happened, and you were kind of had to be cooped up in your own place. Mm -hmm. What kind of impact did that have? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, the COVID shutdown had a roommate all the time, and him and I were very good friends for a very long time. We sort of had a falling out at the beginning of COVID-19 when that happened. I ended up moving to a new location. I lived by myself at that location for approximately a year, actually, through the first part of COVID-19, where everything was you know, locked down and shut down. I was by myself. And, it was kind of horrible in the respect that, you know, obviously I think everybody felt horrible about being locked out or shut down. Sort of a very difficult also just being alone and being shut down or locked down. I mean, thinking about it, I mean, it's like I would go months and months and I mean, nobody's really even touched me. As a per you know what I mean? Like period or anything, or I haven't really talked with anybody, like one of my friends directly in like a week or two. And that would be, you know, good in time periods. I think I managed to make it through fine. I didn't have symptoms of hallucinations, delusions, I guess of manic depression. I was medicated well during that time period. It was hard on everyone, and I just assume anyone that is struggling is going to struggle even harder during that time. It's very possible, depending on the support or either the circumstance. I'm lucky that I have friends right there I could call, my family I could call. That was great. There was a period of time for Christmas, a lot of people didn't go home for Christmas. My mom required my presence for Christmas. She was basically, you're not, there's no option for you. Yeah you will be coming home for Christmas. <laughs> so I was able to spend a lot of time with my family during holidays. So yeah, it was, I guess it was good. Are um, there things that trigger an episode? Are there things that happen that you can well, track? Things that tend to trigger things like, for instance, alcohol use. <laughs> I drink occasionally with a lot of these medications you shouldn't be drinking. Lithium, manic depressive, probably shouldn't be drinking too much. I can usually go one or two and be okay. 
But if you end up drinking three or four and you continue to do that nightly, you can dilute out the lithium that's in your system. And that will basically, it loses its effect, which can cause some of the symptoms to come back. I've had that happen before. I remember going to one of my psychiatrists who was an amazing psychiatrist. I'd had him for about 15 years. He would basically be like, if you ever have any problems, just call me and come by that day and we'll take care of it immediately when it's happening. And, you know, if you ever need to call me, I'm there that day, which was amazing. He would make time and he did. And so there was one particular time I was having problems hearing stuff and some issues with delusions a little bit. I sat down and I talked to him and he goes, now, why don't you tell me what's going on exactly? You know, what's happening? I told him that, well, I'm having these issues and I'm having some thoughts and, uh, you know, maybe I'm hearing some stuff and maybe seeing a little bit of things, having some, a little bit of that kind of stuff. It's scaring me, you know, and, and et cetera. He's like, oh, okay, well, what else have you been doing? And I'm like, well, I've been, had a few drinks here and there. He's like, how many drinks? <laughs> I'm like, well, a few. And enough, he goes, and basically his response at that point was, congratulations, give me a high five. I think I know what's wrong with you. And at that point, he's like, here's what I want you to do. Take these scripts, stop drinking. <laughs> he goes, do this for this period, do this and this, and we'll see how you feel. He goes, hey, you don't need to go to the hospital, right? I'm like, I don't need to go to the hospital. Because <laughs> okay. And that's how we would deal with things. And I did what he said. And lo and behold, he was right. You've described to me, sometimes we can hear voices, actual voices that are there, like a neighbor talking or somebody. And then you can't distinguish. I call it chatter. It's sort of in the background occasionally. It merges with other voices. If you can't distinguish, that's probably a good thing. Because it's just like it would be with anything else. Any noises around you or whatnot, typically. Sometimes I'll think I'll hear the neighbors, or I have been in a position where I've thought I've heard neighbors and other things, but I didn't. They weren't really there. And it's hard to really gauge that sometimes depending on what your circumstance is or what the environment is. The important thing is if there's anything along with that is not indulging the delusional thought that goes with it. To recognize it is what it is, and there's a reason that things are happening. Have you ever had a voice give you a command or tell you to do something? Not so much. The ones that I've tend to experience in the past have been more so just critical of things. Sometimes they're also very supportive. It depends. There are times that I know I've heard voices in the past and just being medicated and just it happens occasionally. You hear something and you don't know, and it's actually, it's a positive comment. You're like, that wasn't real though. I know it's not. It just doesn't make sense that I would hear it with that tone of voice or volume of voice. You know, it doesn't fit it right. I always think about you have like a devil and an angel on each shoulder, or we all have that negative sabotaging voice of you're yes. not good enough for it to actually go from being your thought to being an intrusive thing that you hear that's not your own thought, I guess. That's the way I put it. It's a very terrifying experience, or it can be, especially when things are being very negative about you. If you have multiple voices happening at that point that are sometimes tend to be talking with one another. A lot of what I had in the past wasn't directly at me, but it would be hearing people in the apartment next door talking badly about me or about what I'm doing or too loud or I'm just this horrible person or whatever. And that would be, I would hear things and it would be an awful feeling, obviously. And then your delusion kicks in and you start thinking, I am being too loud and yep. I'm a bad person. And then you're paranoid. Yeah. And maybe you hear like somebody's in the building is hacking shit. For instance, like computer-based stuff. 
occasionally I would remember hearing voices from other people in the building, like, yeah, you know, let's get in and like hack this stuff and I'm going to hack. And then you get paranoid. So then you're pulling up all your firewall rolls and everything in your computer and, you know, making sure you're trying to hoping you're secure, that kind of thing. I mean, you know. (laughs) It sucks because it's not paranoia if they are watching and we know on the internet there always is somebody watching but chances are you wouldn't hear them talking to someone about watching you <laughs> yeah. yeah but it doesn't yeah that's the thing i mean we've both been in it before we know this <laughs> it gives you a healthy sense of security and paranoia all at the same time so where are you at now and what would you suggest to people that might be in your same shoes I assume there are probably people out there that are professionals that are out there that have went through similar types of things. Honestly, I salute you because anybody that can go through this is truly amazing. You should definitely feel good about yourselves and give yourselves a pat on the back. Maybe you haven't thought about that in a while, but uh, it's definitely a good thing to think out. To anyone that is younger and having problems and working with a psychiatrist or a professional, my thing is find the right psychiatrist, find the right person to work with. You may work with one or two and they're not so great. That's not entirely usual. I've went to have more than a handful of psychiatrists that were awful for one of which I would ask him, I would be like, so you go back and how do you know what to give me? <laughs> you know, basically, how do you know what I need? How do you figure that out? Like scientifically, what do you do? Does it like explain this, your process? And he would just looked at me and he kind of had this like tired face and let me tell you what I do. He goes, I let you sit up here. And then I go back to the back room and I look into my crystal ball and I say, tell me what Chris Reyes needs today. <laughs> and that's what I do. I'm like, what an, you got to be kidding me. No. I mean, nobody wants anybody like that. And nobody wants anybody that's going to be negative with you or always in a hurry, not be able to relax and to maybe make jokes, be positive about things. I mean, that's what the person who's taking care of you should be. Psychiatrists, they're just going to give you medications. That's their big thing. They're not going to be like a psychologist, but you know, even the psychiatrists I had were pretty great people. I went through two or three really bad psychiatrists because Prozac doesn't go well with me. The first one, it would take, you know, like, oh, we're going to try this. I stopped taking it because three days in, I was road raging and freaking out on people and i was like it was a very dangerous situation so i stopped taking it and then i kind of got that look of well you're not doing what i'm telling you to do and then the next psychiatrist i was having memory issues at the time the next psychiatrist eight months later prescribes me prozac again he didn't even look at my file and it was the same organization all i had to do was just scroll down like a few pages but he didn't do that and when I tried to explain to him, I don't think I have depression or anxiety. I think I have ADD. I was treated as if, don't tell me how to do my job. I was treated very dismissively, like, you're not smarter than me. And I'm just sitting there thinking, you, you're like, how do you figure out what to give me? And I'm like, I'm an IT professional. I troubleshoot. So all I've done my entire life is troubleshoot problems. And right now I'm troubleshooting myself. And I felt like I was doing a much better job than any of the doctors or psychologists or psychiatrists that I was speaking with. Honestly, that's the thing. I'm lucky now that the psychiatrist I see now, in many instances, lets me have an active role in what they're prescribing since. Because they'd be like, well, you know your body. You know you. You've dealt with this for how many years? You know how you feel. 
You know, what helps you and what doesn't. So you need to be a part of the process. One of the things that I always do when I go to see these people is I write down what I'm taking or put it where I've got it in front of me, a list of what I'm taking and how much. So that can be a part of things. So if they try to do things or if there's an accident, what they're prescribing, you can catch it there while you're in front of them. It's really important, I think, to have a psychiatrist that actively engages with you is a part of what you're doing, even if you think they're completely ridiculous or cheesy. Or I had one, a psychiatrist for 15 years, is truly amazing. Unfortunately, he died of COVID-19. He was truly amazing. At times, he'd be completely ridiculous. You know, it'd be like, I'd go in and to see him and he'd be like, well, here's the medication you're on, right? I'm like, great. And we just, but we just, after that, we just sit and talk for a few minutes. He'd be like, so you seen anybody? Yeah. <laughs> be like, no. Oh, you should go out there and like, you know, meet some girls. There's all kinds of girls out there, you know? And he'd be like, you know, I'm telling you, I just, you know, it's, you know, the season's getting nice. Spring is here and they're looking pretty good, you know? And, and I just feel like, give me a break. This guy's like in his like seventies or something. He's come like, give me a break. It's just trying to snap you out of it. That's right. It assess you a little bit, you know what I mean? And at the same time, a little bit more human. Obviously, that's kind of nice to have somebody like that who will joke with you and who will know you that way. It was great. I would go in there. He knew what I was doing. He knew that uh, when I was in graduate school, what I was doing. And when I finished graduate school and what I would be studying and these kind of things. And of course, at one point, and it's not professionally correct exactly, but she wanted me to meet his son. You know, he was going to go to medical school. I didn't mean him. And he wanted to know if, you know, he could spend some time where I work, which we ended up not doing, but I would have. I mean, you've got a background in this, and yeah. he knew that he could possibly utilize you as, at least for advice. Yeah, and it would have been fine. You know, I mean, it's obviously for some people that kind of stuff doesn't work, but he knew for me I was fine with it and I was happy to help. But I think for me, that's the type of person that works best. And I realize that's not for everybody, I guess. I should put that out there a bit. I just want somebody who's going to be a human being with me a little bit and be understanding about things and let me play a role in the process. All I wanted was just for someone to acknowledge and believe what I was saying. Sometimes that's all it takes is an acknowledgement. I believe that you are feeling this way. I believe that you are having these problems and not treat you like, treat you like you're some kind of pill hunter or something. I mean, I'm 45 years old. I've never taken medications in my life until mm -hmm. now. And I was very much against it for most of my life. Again, it was that whole fear of, I don't want to be reliant on something. But at the same time, to be treated like a pill seeker, and I'm just like, you don't know me. <laughs> you have no idea who I am. But everyone that walks through their door, they don't know. You know, That's right. But it just it got really discouraging for me before I finally found a, a psychiatrist. And of course, she was in the private sector, not through the hospital. And I felt that she took me a little more seriously. And she didn't feel like I was a pill hunter or seeker. And I find I found a therapist who's very good and actually gave me advice and homework to do because I never liked therapy where I just vented or talked and they just sat there and listened. And I'm like, no, I, I want to change my behavior. I don't want to sit here and just tell you about my bad behavior. I want to change. And I never seemed to find any therapist that would be like, okay, well, this is what we need to do. I went through dozens of therapists before I found one who's like, no, this is what you need to do. And if you're not doing it, then you need to hold yourself accountable. 
just like with you when you were drinking. It's like, okay, you need to stop drinking because that's the first problem. <laughs> and I think there's a little bit of tough love that needs to happen with a therapist because you can go in and tell your therapist how somebody wronged you all day long and they'll just take your side of it. But sometimes, well, were your neighbors actually yelling about you? Was your wife or husband actually intending offense? Or is it you? who's misinterpreting the world because you're mentally ill and you're misinterpreting things. And sometimes that needs to be pointed out to you before it clips. It's worth quite a bit when you feel somebody is actually telling you the truth. You know what I mean? Assessing you from a perspective of truth as opposed to to get your money or to keep you locked into therapy. Is there anything else you want to mention while we're here? I guess, as we talked about, I know I think it's tempting for a lot of people to take medications and Maybe get to feeling really good and then say, oh, wait, everything's okay. And then stop without their therapist's consent or their psychiatrist's consent and then end up returning back to the state they were in. And that's definitely problematic. I think it's definitely been advantageous for me to not drink and to take my medications correctly. Like I said, I'm a professional. I work in the area of science and technology and I'm a computer programmer. You know, I'm lucky. I really am lucky to have my mind and to more or less be a normal kind of a person doing things. It feels great. Thank you, Chris, for joining and telling your story. Uh, as I said, my audio quality was really bad on this episode. Uh, we actually had recorded in person, which caused some technical difficulties. I have many more interviews to do, and uh, hopefully you'll get a special episode for Halloween.